Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, my guest today is Robert Cialdini. He's a New York Times bestselling author, selling more than 3 million copies of his seminal book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, as well as his latest book, Persuasion, a Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. Dr. Cialdini is also the Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. He's also the President and CEO of Influence at Work. Now, this episode you're about to listen to was recorded in 2017, but it contains so much value for the listener. I want to bring it out of our archives just for you. Now, in this episode, we talk a bit about Robert's classic book, Influence, and then we dive into a discussion of his more recent book, Persuasion. So we really dive into what persuasion means, and he shares that it's really about what savvy communicators do before delivering a message that get it accepted, what he calls front-loading of attention. And it's this front-loading of attention that can be persuasive. And we dig into why it might be that the value of your insights and offer may be less important than when you actually present them. Robert also shares a surprising insight that alters the, our perception a bit of this whole people buy from people they know, like, and trust thing. And there's actually a fourth element that he brings out in his book to that equation. It's people buy from people they know, like, trust, and, well, you're just going to have to stay tuned to find out. All this and much, much more, but before we get to Robert Cialdini, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thanks. All right, let's jump into it. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Andy. Well, thank you for taking the time. So take a minute, uh, very brief introduction we had, but you know, how'd you get into this business of studying influence? I actually um, say something about it in the first paragraph of, uh, of the book Influence. It's that all my life I'd I've been a sucker. <laughs> I've always been a pushover uh, for the appeals of uh, salespeople or fundraisers who've come to my door. And I would stand in unwanted possession of things uh, or uh, recognizing that I contributed to causes I didn't really know about. And, and, and it occurred to me that there must be something other than the merits of the thing. That got me to say yes. Right. I didn't want those particular things I bought, but I was standing there with them and someone was walking away with my money, which I did want. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it must be the psychology of the way the merits were presented 
that won the day. And I decided, well, this is worth studying. Well, it's interesting. In influence, I mean, you more so than persuasion. In influence, you you spend as it almost seems like almost as much time telling people how to resist <laughs> the methods of influence as much as on how to how to implement them. Indeed, that was the purpose of yeah. influence, to inform people about how to recognize and resist uh, influence attempts that were used on them in an undue or unwelcome way. Not all influence attempts. That's very important. I mean, right. uh, influence that's that's done honestly and, and informs people into consent. I am a big fan of that kind of influence. But uh, I, I did want to arm people against uh, those individuals who uh, counterfeited the process, who uh, who misguided people into assent. And uh, so uh, the book was written for uh, consumers in mind. The interesting thing is that uh, no consumer group has ever called me. <laughs> I was going to say, your clients <laughs> and the people you speak to are all on the other side of saying, how do we implement this as opposed to how do we resist it? Precisely, uh, because... Uh, People want to know, well, if you understand how the influence process works, how do we get to harness it? How do we get to harness that understanding so that we can be more effective uh, in the process? And, of course, that requires um, if I'm going to shift from uh, from uh, deflecting influence to uh, employing it, uh, that does require a focus on the ethics of the process. So uh, uh, the people who who use these influence strategies can feel good about it. Not only can profit from it, but they can feel good about themselves in the way that they managed uh, to create that success. Yeah, and it was interesting with that sort of contrast between you know resisting as opposed to implementing is that either way, it really requires a level of, of conscious thought that that most people don't give to this, this idea about influence. I think it's just about sort of brute force persuasion. Mm. And what you lay out in influence are, are you know, almost, you know, things that have been bred into us genetically at some genetic level in terms of, you know, how we react to certain, like the reciprocity and, and so on. So how do we react to that? It's almost like we're, unless we're thinking about it, we're not ability, we don't, we're not able to resist it. I think you're right, Andy. And what has evolved for me in all of this is the recognition that those tendencies that are most primitive in us are also the most powerful. So if we can tap into those fundamental motivations uh, that are universal to the species – then we've got a set of tools that will be most successful over the widest range of situations, widest range of populations. So you laid out influence just quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on influence, but you laid out the six basic sort of precepts of, of influence. So what are those again, just to refresh for the, the listeners? Sure. Uh, the first is reciprocity, the idea that people want to say yes to those who have first given them something. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, uh, research shows that if uh, the manager of a, of a candy store gives people a piece of chocolate as they enter, they become 45% more likely to buy something in the store. <laughs> right. 
because they've received and it it requires something in return when you have received. Uh, so that basic idea, I mean, suggests that we have to give first. And most often it can be uh, information that we can provide that informs people. Right. Uh, you know, uh, I have a friend who's a, uh, uh, she's a, a speaking agent and uh, she had a, a client who was a very slow pay, you know, mm-hmm. it took six months to get paid from this guy. And that was true for all of her friends said the same thing about this guy. So here's what she did to cut in half the uh, return time. When she sends in an invoice, she knows that this guy happens to be um, uh, an art fan. Mm-hmm. She goes to her local art galleries and museums and buys a little postcard of a piece of art. She includes it in the invoice and it's cut his his response time in half because he's received something right, first. Right. Yeah. So another principle is the principle of liking. Nobody would be surprised to know mm-hmm. that we prefer to say yes to those people we like. But, uh, but a small thing we can do to increase the likelihood that people will like us is to simply point to a similarity or a commonality that exists between us. And we now have uh, a tool, the Internet, uh, to find out what those commonalities might be. People tell us about them on Facebook, on LinkedIn, right. and so on. Uh, we'd be fools not to mine the uh, the ore that's there. Um, well, so uh, and, uh, in persuasion, yeah. you, you almost sort of turned that on its head a little bit, though, too, because you talk about how people want to do business with people that they know like them. Oh, which I thought was a really interesting, interesting point. You're exactly right. That was a perceptive uh, comment that you made, because uh, when we find out that someone is similar to us, we like that person more. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we learn that about a customer and let that customer know, not only does the customer like us more, we like the customer more. And that's what he or she really wants to see. That's very, very, very interesting. If, if, if you're going to sell me something and I like you because you're funny and you're sociable and, and, and so on, that's fine. But it doesn't have the weight of knowing that you like me mm-hmm. because I'm safe there. Yeah, we tend – when we talk about people buy from people they know, like, and trust – we tend not to think about it being a two-way street. And right. it's really out on persuasion. It really is a two-way street. Right. So liking. Then another is uh, is what we call uh, social proof, the idea that if a lot of other people are doing something, it becomes more legitimate. So simply informing people uh, of what the most popular model is that we have or the most popular pay- payment plan or so on gets them to stop dithering and decide, okay, this is the one I will choose. Mm-hmm. Another principle is authority. We, we tend to defer to the, um, to the opinions of legitimately constituted experts. So if we can show people that 
others uh, who are legitimate experts in an, an arena uh, have uh, endorsed what we're saying, uh, very often uh, that is enough to stop people from uh, looking further mm-hmm. and to decide, okay, here's a shortcut I can use to be right. I'll align myself with the experts. And it really plays into this whole idea of, and I think you referred to it some in your book, uh, with Herbert Simon with the satisficers. It yes. Is, yeah, people want to make the good enough decision, right? They're not, they're not, most people aren't going to be the maximizers, you know, evaluating every single option out there, but that really plays with, into that. With complex decisions, we want to make them good and gone. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, so I, there, in fact, there's a colleague of mine who who uh, did a study with realty uh, uh, in a realty organiza- realtors organization, and he listened to what um, the receptionist said when she took a call. And let's say the this was in uh, London. Uh, the the, the uh, caller said, uh, "I'm looking for." Um, commercial real estate in uh, Knightsbridge, right? Mm-hmm. She would say, let me, co- let me connect you, right? If instead she said, let me connect you to our expert in commercial real estate in Knightsbridge, they got a 16% increase in conversions from callers to customers. Simply honestly informing people of expertise that was there in the situation. The, the the best thing about that little study was that that receptionist was doing, was sending people to experts anyway. Right. She was, she just didn't say so. <laughs> well, and, and then you're also, you're bringing persuasion into the whole thing with when you're labeling that person the expert. Before they ever said, said they word. ever heard a word from that person. Right. They were persuaded to defer to this person's judgment because he or she was an expert. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, yeah. and then the last one. Well, the, the, oh, two, two others. Two one, right. one is uh, scarcity. Uh, no, no surprise that we prefer to say yes. Uh, or, or we find things that are scarce or rare, dwindling in availability, uh, more attractive. There was a study done in, in supermarkets. They just randomly put beneath certain brands only three items per customer, and it doubled sales <laughs> for seven different brands. People want what they can't have. So when we have unique features, we have to be sure that we bring that to the top of consciousness before they even begin uh, considering those features. We have to tell them that these are uncommon, unique, uh, and or, or perhaps dwindling in availability. Right. And then finally, there's commitment and consistency. People want to be consistent with what they have already committed themselves to. Um, and, and so if we can get people to take a small step in our direction, they will be much more likely to take a larger a step in that direction, provided that it's consistent with what we've asked them already to do. And you have an extremely powerful uh, case study about that in Influence about the letters that the POWs wrote uh, during the Korean War, which, again, not to get too far off track, but it may just spend a second on that because it shows the power of this consistency in our human nature. 
Right. During the Korean War, the Chinese uh, uh, allies of uh, North Korea would, were often in charge of the prisoner of war camps. And one uh, tactic that they used to turn people into um, um, essentially um, telling – uh, the administrators about plans for escapes and so on um, was to uh, begin with a very small request. Would you agree that the United States is not a perfect country? And everybody would say yes. And they'd say, well, can you give us an example of how it's not a perfect country? And they would say, well, you know, we have um, economic ups and downs. We have unemployment. Uh-huh. Well, can you tell us, would you be willing to write that down? Yes. Okay, they write it down. It's what you believe, right? Why mm-hmm. not? Then they would say, would you be willing to read your essay over the loudspeakers here in the camp? And now these people had gone from simply admitting something that was universal. Yes, no country is perfect to now being collaborators with the enemy. (laughs) And that would then get them to take other kinds of stands that were consistent with that behavior. Yeah, and it just said there's just the power of human nature that that you – I said almost genetically encoded that that's that's the way you act because you this you have this basic need to be consistent within your own thought process. Precisely right. So as you talked about before, is is yeah, if you ask for a small commitment from a customer before the big one, is they're just acting in a consistent fashion that way. Right. It's not just that you've given them a chance to. Um, experience, let's say, a small uh, sample of your product, right? To, to make a small purchase just to see. It's that once they've made that step in your direction, you've changed them from prospects to customers. And it means something entirely different to be in the role of customer than prospect. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's really interesting because I, <laughs> yeah, I've always found that that over time, so when you're selling, a, the, the very act of selling to a customer necessarily changes them. Yes. And yes. and so where you think you're going at the beginning of the process is necessarily, if you're paying attention, is necessarily going to be different when you get halfway through and three quarters of the way through. I agree. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, let's so. You wrote this great book, Influence, and again, if people out there haven't read it, they absolutely need to put it on their list and get it read. I had a number of my clients read it this past year. Um, so what was what was the motivation then to write Persuasion? What was what would you see that was missing that you had done Influence that, that you wanted to complete? Something was happening in um, my assessment of how the influence process works that didn't fit completely with the six universal principles of influence. For example, this this happened to me and it caused me to step back and make another one of these decisions. Oh, there's a book to be written here. There was a knock at my door. There was a man standing there um, and he was asking me to contribute to a cause. It was after school 
programs for elementary school children whose parents were working and and, and needed something uh, positive to be doing with their time uh, after school. He didn't um, show me any credentials that he was associated with this program. And in fact, I hadn't heard, I'd heard of such programs, but I hadn't gotten any information that these programs were being considered for my local school system. Right? But I wound up giving this man more money than I normally give to legitimate charity organizations that I'm confident are legitimate charity organizations. And besides that, I felt good about it. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I closed the door and thought to myself, wait a minute. How did he do that? That was a risky thing he got me to do. Right. Mm-hmm. How did he get me to prioritize children's or the prospect of children's after school programs above the riskiness of giving my money to someone I didn't know who showed me no credentials? And then I realized it was such what he had done before he said a word. He brought his seven year old daughter with him. And I was focused on children right. and children's issues. And I was happy to give him my money because the, what had happened is that he had, he had changed the state of mind I was in before he made his appeal for children. The state of mind I was in was now congruent with his message. And that was the lever for change. It was what he did first. Right. And I thought to myself, oh, there's a book here. <laughs> and it turned out a very good book. So for people listening, you know, Presuasion is, is the, the title. And it's you're, if you write it down, your spell correct is going <laughs> to, spell check is going to autocorrect it a million times before it lets you go by. It's well, like, there's a hyphen between pre and suasion. Yeah, well, so was, that will help if they was, do that. When I was doing my notes for, for this preparation of this interview, I, I had to type it five times, even with the hyphen before it let me. Yeah. But to summarize it, and you use this phrase to say, you know, it's what savvy communicators do before delivering a message to get it accepted. You know, we talked before about front-loading this attention. So it's, it's I think you used the term channeled attention yeah. in the book. So what you're saying is you're not trying to change a person's beliefs. Uh, you're only trying to sort of change what's prominent in their mind at the time that they're, they're making a decision. Exactly. So uh, one way to say it is that you're not yet trying to change their mind you're first trying to change their state of mind so that when you make your case, they will be uniquely receptive to it because of the state of mind that you've arranged for them to be in. I like that. That's a great, a great way to say it. So, you know, we talked before about this idea of, of uh, you know, creating positive, strong first perceptions and impressions. And... And this idea of sort of front-loading value into a, a sales process. And any thoughts about how you sort of can persuade on that? Because I, 
and again, we talked a little bit about this before we yeah. came on the air, is that, is that in crowded competitive sales arenas is that salespeople really have to be that front line of differentiation. But to be yeah. able to do that, they need to be able to capture the time and attention of the prospects. And so you got these people that are inundated with emails and undifferentiated messaging. Right. So how does persuasion work in that environment? It channels their attention to something that is your strength. So um, let's say that uh, you want to sell on quality of what you have to offer rather than price. And we know that that's a big problem for most salespeople. If you get into this downward cycle of mm -hmm. reducing your price to try to deal with what your competitors have done, uh, it's a race to the bottom where no one wins because the customers are given um, inferior uh, merchandise, inferior services, and the, and the profit margin is so thin it hardly pays to be in the business. So what can you do? Well, here's a study that was done uh, for an online furniture store. Researchers sent half of the customers to of to uh, to a landing page for this online uh, store mm -hmm. that had fluffy clouds as the background wallpaper the other half were sent to a back uh, to a landing page that had pennies small coins as the background wallpaper right what happened was those individuals who initially saw, the first thing they saw, their attention was channeled to comfort by those clouds, by softness and comfort. They rated comfort as significantly more important as a basis for deciding what kind of furniture to buy. They searched the site for comfort-related information, and they wound up preferring more comfortable furniture to purchase. Those who were sent to the site with pennies, right, mm -hmm. they rated cost as the most important thing in their decisions. They searched the site for price information, and they wound up preferring inexpensive furniture to purchase. So where they were steered first to value or, 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 or comfort, quality, or, or cost determined where they went and what they ultimately decided. Now, maybe the most interesting and in some ways scary thing about all of this is when they were asked afterwards, not one recognized that the clouds or the, or the pennies influenced their decision. It was so under the radar because it happened before the message. Mm -hmm. People aren't looking before the message to any persuasive techniques. They're looking in the message. So they never even recognized it. So we have to use this. We've got dynamite here. Yeah. Well, and you think about the ways that the sales, from the negative standpoint, the way that salespeople 
inadvertently and subconsciously set a tone that could be price oriented, could be yeah. that before they even start talking. Exactly. And, and so we have to be – what we have to decide is what's our strength? What is the differentiator? What would make it wisest for people to focus on within our message that is wisest for them that would send them to a consideration of our, our strength? Right? Focus on – all right. If that's it, then you take them to the moment before the message begins and give them an image – or, um, or a phrase or a slogan that brings their attention to that particular differentiator. Hmm. So, so essentially, we're reverse engineering the yeah. process of persuasion. <laughs> so, one part that you bring up that's sort of interesting that I wanted to follow up on is. <clears throat> You talk about that it's, that it's not um, not often the the best solution that um, you know sort of guides the decision. But what's been I think you use the term what's been most recently brought to mind. So the last one in basically. Right. What is the what's the last thing? What's top of mind? Maybe that's the best way to say it. What's top of mind? Right. When. You're about to make your request. What have you brought to consciousness, elevated to consciousness, right? Immediately before you've made your your pitch, right? Mm-hmm. That will determine how receptive people will be to your pitch, right? Uh, here's an example. It just happened to me a while ago uh, while I was doing the research for this book, um, and. In it, uh, in the new book, Persuasion, I develop uh, the argument for a seventh principle of influence. Besides the six we just talked about, there's one I call unity, the idea of being inside the boundaries of we mm-hmm. with with your audience. They see you not just as, oh, you know what? They, they, they don't just say, you know, Andy is like us. They say, Andy is one of us. Andy is of us. With us. Inside that set of boundaries, everything is easier in the influence process. People say yes to those inside the boundaries of we. Well, so So how do you get here's my so here's there there are a couple let me let me uh, give a couple of examples. One is pointing to existing memberships that you share. All right. Here's an example. Um, so I just had, I had just reviewed all this research on this concept of unity and togetherness. And uh, I, I was also writing a report uh, that w- was due the next day. And I realized I didn't have all the information I needed in my files to complete my report. But I knew that one of my colleagues in the psychology department where I work did have that information from a study that he had done. So I sent him an email. And this was kind of an irascible sort of uh, sour guy. Uh, Let's call him Tom. Uh, 
I, I, so I sent him an email. I said, Tom, uh, I, I'm in a bind. I need some information for a report that's due tomorrow morning. I don't have it, but I know you have it. Could you go to your files and get that out for me and send it to me? I'm going to call you uh, on this uh, uh, in, in a couple of minutes. So I called him. He said, Bob, I know why you're calling, but I'm not going to be able to help you with this. Look, I'm a busy man. I have my own deadlines and so on. I can't be responsible for your poor time management skills. Right? <laughs> now, Andy, before I had read this research on unity, the concept of inside the boundaries of we, right? Here's what I would have said to him. But Tom, I really need this. I'd appreciate it if you could do this for me. That's what I would have said. But it wouldn't have been successful. He had already told me no. Right? So instead, I, I did something first. I said, you know, Tom, we've been in the same psychology part department now for 12 years. I really need this. I really hope you could do this for me. <laughs> And I had the information that afternoon. So <laughs> one question I have is, so when you approach your colleagues, do they all have their defenses up? They do. <laughs> but let me tell you that since I use these things persuasively, right. they don't even recognize <laughs> that anything was being done. Now, right. here's the second thing that I think we can get that your 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 listeners can, can use. You know how... Uh, this idea of co-creation, how we ask our sure. customers to help us create the next a generation of a particular product right. or service or to modify what we've got or to tell us about their expectations for uh, a, a new uh, uh, version of what we have to offer. Right. And we 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 ask them for their feedback. I think that's great. But when we ask them for their feedback, we typically make a one-word mistake. We ask them for their opinion on this topic. Can you give us your opinion of what you would like in the next um, the next generation of our products, or what it, your your expectations for what our next uh, version would look like, right? Here's what happens when you ask for an expectation or an opinion. People take a half step back from you psychologically, and they go into themselves to find that expectation or that opinion. They introspect, essentially. They separate from you. Okay? If instead you ask for their advice, mm -hmm. they take a half step toward you. They unify with you. They see you as a partner with them on this project. You're, they become cooperative and collaborative in their state of mind immediately before you give them your your blueprint or your, your draft of what you have in mind, right? And the research shows they become more supportive of your plan before they encounter it. 
Yeah, and that's, because, and that's a very subtle difference between advice yeah. and opinion. That's right. The, but the research shows that the difference is not that people thought that if you asked for that. So half of them were asked for their opinion. Half were asked for their uh, 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 advice. Those who were asked for their opinion thought that they had helped as much as the people who were asked for their advice. It wasn't how much they thought they had helped. It was how close they felt Right. To the person who had asked them, if if they were asked for their opinion, they went into themselves. If they were asked for their advice, they went into a partnership mode. Yep. yep. Oh, I like that. Very cool. All right. One last question for you. So, and this is something of really importance to me because, again, we see in the sales field a lot of automation coming into the space. Yeah. And... And you have a phrase you use that that um, you talk about. You know, we allow present day sort of forces of separation. Then you talk. I think you're applying to sort of social media and other things. Take a shared sense of human connection out of exchanges. Um, yeah, I use the term. The the relation gets removed, leaving just the ships passing at sea. I love that line. Um, you know, do you see a danger of you know, the human to human, person to person, impact of person to person, influence, persuasion, persuasion sort of diminishing? Well, I think that anyone who uh, understands this process can benefit from that, what, what seems to be um, just uh, inevitable shift in technology. Uh, because of the internet, that we are going to be contacting people by email, by uh, mass mm-hmm. uh, means rather than face-to-face. But if we put inside those messages, especially at the start of them, some connection between us, some personalizing message that lets them know that we have – taken into account who they are, right? That is that reestablishes that human that human basis for uh, exchange and uh, gives us the the right mindset uh, for becoming um, more uh, connected mm-hmm. in uh, the exchange. I love it. Great. Well, Robert, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, tell folks how they can find out more about you and, and your books and so on. The best place is our website, uh, www.influenceatwork.com. Influence at work is all one word, dot com. And they can get information about uh, our the, our books, um, the, uh, the the tapes that we've got, we, we even do um, um, platform presentations at conferences and so on. Uh, so all of that's available there on influenceatwork.com. Excellent. And yeah, for people who listen to the show, we've talked about <laughs> your first book, Influence, quite a bit in terms of recommended titles people should read. 
make sure you get that read if you haven't already and then add persuasion to your list it's a great companion piece to it you can read it on its own as well but i recommend you read both so again robert thank you very much for joining me okay friends that's it for this episode first of all i want to thank you for taking the time to listen as always i'm so grateful for your support of our show and i want to thank my guest robert cialdini for sharing his wisdom and insights with us today if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And also, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.